The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we're joined today for the Culture Club by one of our greatest novelists. Prolific as well when you look at all the work that he has done over the years. And he has a terrific new book of short stories called Life Without Children. Roddy Doyle, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. I've read the first four stories and they're absolutely terrific. Thank you. What I love about them is I love the sparseness of your writing. Mm -hmm. I also enjoy the stories that you develop. But the one thing that really got me, the characters that you create, you seem to have an enormous empathy for them. Well, the reader does, perhaps. Yeah, I suppose, you know, you're, you're in the company of these people and they're fictional. You know, they come out of my head. But I suppose you get to not necessarily like them, but you're, you know, you're walking down the street beside them as they walk down the street or you're standing lost in the back garden. <laughs> as they are. And I suppose as you try to get the words that are their words and that bring them to life for the reader, you you begin to occupy their lives as well. So I wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, guide them towards a happy ending just because I like them. You know what I mean? But, but it's your understanding of the situations of these fictional characters well, you create. I suppose where coming up with the words that bring them to life. And, you know, sometimes the the, the title story, for example, uh, Life Without Children, there's two things I think that meet there. First of all, uh, the week before the lockdown officially started here, when the schools were closed down and other theatres were closing down in cinemas, I was actually in the UK, you know, I was in in succession, I think it was Manchester, Edinburgh and uh, Newcastle. Where the, the story, story is set. set in Newcastle and Gateshead. Yeah, and while I was reading about what was happening in Ireland and phoning home and being told, you know, about social distancing and, you know, get yourself some sanitizer. And I went into Boots looking for sanitizer, and it was full of these very old people hocking, hacking and coughing and ordinarily wouldn't have given me pause for thought, but I legged it, you know, and there, were, there was no sanitizer to be had, you know. And they, uh, I was doing a series of uh, kind of in-conversation events and there was a line manager and his partner, who was a vet, had um, made up a whole load of their own hand sanitizer. So this guy gave me like a little a little bottle of, you know, contraband hand sanitizer, <laughs> which would have with a street value of 200 quid. And I brought it home, you know, thinking this is precious stuff. And when I got into the house in Dublin, I had to climb over the hand sanitizer. It was so much... <laughs> So it was as if I was, you know, ordinarily, I don't feel too far away when I'm in England, you know, particularly North England. It's, it's actually quite familiar. But this time around, I felt so far away that it really, it, when I got home and started writing the story, um, the other thing that sprang to mind was just that that state when the children aren't children anymore, you know. And uh, there's a hollowness there for. Hang a on, while. none of this is autobiographical, though, in any no. way. This stuff, because no. I just I tell you what it is. At least you came home, unlike the sort of the characters and oh, books I don't, I don't who no seem to want to escape from no. their realities. Yeah, well, that's where the fiction starts. I mean, very often the spark might be autobiographical. You know, it yeah. might be. So, uh, for example, I remember you remember the 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 hurricane that never quite happened, ex-hurricane Ophelia. It happened on the West Coast, but not here. Yeah, which you write about in one of the stories. So I remember looking out the window thinking, looking down at the wheelie bins that I'd tucked in under the hedge and fully expecting them to be picked up and carried down the street by the wind and 
in a way, half wanted to see a car being lifted or, you know, people in the air like Dorothy. <laughs> and it never happened. But when I was using that for the story, it stopped being about me. Uh, yeah, obviously, I could use the images that I thought I might be going to see, but didn't. And the impressions and the sense of relief, but uh, twinned with disappointment. But it's, they're never about me, you know, never. Um, they're imagined people, but do you spend a lot of time with other people? Because you sometimes mean, in we think, my life. yeah, because sometimes we think of writers as sort of a solitary existence, going into your attic and write, uh-huh. writing. But do you actually spend a lot of time with other people? Um, I have a social life, yeah, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I mean, going out, having a few pints, I and do, sort of, yeah, I do, and understanding people's and that's ordinary what, lives. You know, because that's of part it. of the part of the strange energy writing the stories was that total isolation. I do work alone, you know, so I'm well used to spending big chunks of the day by myself and quite content. It, it's it's actually necessary. So, if it, uh, you know, if if you're a writer and you you have difficulty. Being isolated, you're in trouble, really, you know. So I do spend a lot of time on my own. But I did realise early on that I missed the pub, not because of the alcohol. I didn't miss the pints at all. I missed the company, really did. And that got, that was at its worst, I think, after Christmas, January, February, March. And there was one point where I was able to measure. I think I I looked and I thought it must have been about seven or eight weeks where outside of my immediate family, I'd spoken to nobody. And um, that wasn't a deliberate decision. Somehow or other, though, it became the habit, you know. So that's where the strange energy to write the stories came from. That isolation that, uh, if you like, if my normal isolated day is beer, this type of isolation was spirits. It was just um, <laughs> unwelcome. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't wanted at all. And But uh, I did, I think, cop on to the idea that the way to t- the way to write about what was happening was in stories, little episodes, moments in people's lives, rather than trying to capture the whole thing, because the vocabulary we were using was changing by the week. Our attitudes towards things were changing by the week. The terror, I think, that was the the the, the high anxiety that was you could put a match to in the first months, if you like, while it went away, it was still there, but gradually, you know. The attitude towards masks, which we now kind of take for granted in many ways. It'll be a long time, I think, before I'd feel comfortable going into a supermarket without wearing a mask. I hope eventually I'll do it. But, I, you know, just because we don't have to do it sometime in the future doesn't mean I won't start, keep doing it. But I'm thinking back to the first while we used to go into supermarkets without wearing masks before masks were mandatory. And that seems fi- science fictional now, really dicing with death there, you know. So... It was the shifting and changing that it allowed me to jump into a new story every time I'd finished one, you know, so and and tried to capture what was going on in that year between March last year and year, March this year. I get the impression from reading the book that you watched loads of television as well, because oh. you're able to make so many references to all the things that people are streaming. Although I was yeah. laughing at one character who felt behind because everyone else had already watched the things <laughs> that he actually had to go and watch. Yeah, no. I suppose the, the big commitment was to uh, The Sopranos. Watched it all again from start to finish, you know. And yeah, watched a lot of telly. And like a lot of people, watched half of a series or two thirds of a series, then heard about something better. And, you know, and the WhatsApp pages were pinging away. Oh, you have to watch this on Netflix. Oh, you have to watch this on, you know. 
And um, I'm glad I saw all of series three of Ozark because you managed to give away as a spoiler one of the main things at the end of series three. Uh, well, luckily you'd seen it, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but um, yeah, but when I was a teacher, when I started writing, you know, the snapper, the commitments in the van, I was able to put in, you know, references to programs on telly that I'd never seen because I knew they were in the air. So I'd never seen an episode of Neighbours, but I mentioned it, I remember. in the And, you know, just because I mentioned it doesn't mean I actually... <laughs> I've any idea what it's all about. And have you watched many of these TV shows now that you've mentioned in Life Without Children? Yeah, except the ones I made up and don't actually exist. <laughs> <laughs> OK, did you listen to much music? We'll start Culture Club with music. Did you get use the opportunity to listen back to many things? I, li- I listen to music generally when I'm working, yeah. Oh, do you? You're able I to do, work yeah, with the music yeah. on? Yeah. Uh, I kind of like, if I'm working on a fresh piece of work, I kind of like just deciding on a type of music that I listen to while I'm doing it, you know. And uh, sometimes if I'm editing, I tend not to listen to music. If I'm just writing, filling in a page, I do. And uh, I got um, what I did as well was that when uh, when we were allowed to go from the 2K walk to a 5K walk, I walked to Fairview to the bike shop and bought a bike and was cycling a bike for the first time in many years, you know. And I was, you know, where I lived as a a cycle path, um, which is brilliant, really. It brings you all the way to Sutton. And uh, um, I was able to listen to music in that way. And I'd just go and listen to music I hadn't listened to in years, really, and watch the seagulls. So it was, um, yeah, it was a good time for listening to music. Okay, well, we asked people first their favourite single they remember buying. And you've gone back to 1977 to television and Marquee Moon. Yeah. Tell us about this particular track, which you bought as a 45. Yes, a 45. I suppose uh, people listening should ask their grandparents what a 45 is. <laughs> it's a little record. And I think it probably cost about 50 pence. And um, I'm not sure exactly how much they cost in 1977. It's a magnificent song, but because it's over three minutes long, considerably over three minutes long, to listen to the whole track, you had to flip it over and it <laughs> continued on the B-side. And I think that happened a few times with records, but it's the only one I remember. But it's an amazing piece of music. The guitar as well, Tom Verlaine's guitar in particular, it's unearthly and seems strange. And uh, I went to see them years and years and years later. It's brilliant to see them there, but God, he was irritating because he kept tuning the guitar. He spent more time tuning the guitar than he did playing the songs. Maybe because... <laughs> He didn't have all that many songs in his repertoire, I don't know. But it was brilliant to see him, you know, to pay homage to the man. But it was a, an extraordinary piece of music. And I think captures that time, uh, you know, when punk and reggae and all these, you know, new forms of music were uh, really shaken up what had been there before. I think it's uh, I think it's brilliant. We have a bit of it, not a full one side of the single, but this is Marquee Moon.
Okay, that's television and Marky Moon. No, for a favourite album, you have picked a Bob Dylan album, Highway 61 Revisited. Tell us about your love for Dylan. Oh, it goes way back. School, probably second year in school. Uh, you know, Bowie was young and fresh and, um, you know, Steely Dan were just about to become a thing in my life. And... Um, friend of mine gave me a tape of the free, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. I remember lying in bed at night listening to it, thinking it was great and almost reluctant to think it was great because it was just like folk music and, you know, I associated folk music with iron sweaters and stuff like that and didn't want anything to do with it. And then uh, uh, he taped Highway 61 and... That was just extraordinary because it was the same voice, the same man, but he'd plugged in the guitar or whatever. And it was just the the racket and the sheer vitality of it. And the fact that I would play it quite regularly and there always seems to be something. And now, you know, we're nearly 50 years since I heard the first, it, it the first time. And there always seems to be something that I hadn't really paid that much attention to before. It just seems to be packed with incredible images and incredible sounds, and um, um, it just and then I read. It's lived with me all my life, and I read I, recently. I got a Christmas present about the recording of that album, and it was a journalist tried to eavesdrop on what was going on, you know, and um, he got into the studio one morning, and Dylan was sitting at the piano, and he was thrown out, and he came back about ten hours later, and Dylan was sitting at the piano. So his conclusion was that Dylan had been sitting at the piano there for all day, <laughs> which I think says more about journalism than it does about Bob Dylan. <laughs> Let's hear Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues from Highway 61 Revisited. I cannot move My fingers are all in a To get up and take another shot And my best friend, my doctor Won't even say what it is I've got Sweet Melinda, the peasants call her The goddess of gloom Speaks good English and she invites you up into her room. And you're so kind and careful. there. It just struck me one of the more unusual projects you did in your career was um, ghostwriting Roy Keane's autobiography. Did the two of you bond over a mutual love of Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> No, Bond. <laughs> uh, no, I think we, um, we we got on very well uh, because we were doing something together that we were both really enjoying, you know, writing the book. Yeah. And there were things we had in common, like, you know, probably most obviously, uh, love of football, which was way more important. <laughs> Hang on, you're a Chelsea but we did fan, at the aren't you? I am, yeah, and I got slagged for it, you know, unmercifully. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Dylan came up in conversation now and again, you know, but I... The musical moment with uh, Roy was I was talking um, with him work-wise about uh, anger, you know, 
And I said, I asked him, did he know the uh, Public Image Limited song Rise with that line, anger is an energy. And kind of Roy sat up and said, that's my favourite song. You know, anger is an energy. And I think that when you look at Roy, you know, footage of Roy running from box to box to box to box, killing attacks, you know, in battle. And, and he uses the phrase battle quite a lot to describe a football match. Anger is an energy is, uh, I think, encapsulates it very, very well. So, yeah, we did, uh, as you say, bond <laughs> during the writing of that book. But I don't think Dylan can claim responsibility. <laughs> Favourite band, Talking Heads. Tell us why you've gone for Talking Heads. Ah, they're great. They're so, uh, you know, so, so eccentric. I really, really loved them when I was a young man and just started teaching. And before that as well, actually. But there was something about the lyrics. I mean, if you want to hear love songs, you don't listen to Talking Heads. But if you want to hear eccentricity and kind of uh, angst and um, a, a young man, if you like, articulating his troubles with the world, David Byrne was your man. And there was a thing about the lyrics. I was doing geography in UCD and then I became a geography teacher with, a, with well, English teacher with geography. And I've always loved maps and looking at the world and um, songs like The Big Country off their second album, more songs about buildings and food. It's a real geographer's song, you know, social geographer's song. I wouldn't live there if you paid me to, you know, the big country he's talking about. Basically, it's what some of the TDs refer to as rural Ireland. <laughs> and um, then there's the song uh, Once in a Lifetime, which is probably their best known song, although... Um, there's another one now that seems to get a lot more airplay. And Once in a Lifetime, I sat up when I heard it. Well, brilliant. That album is just extraordinary, Remain in Light. But Once in a Lifetime is a real geography teacher's um, song, in a way, because it, it goes into um, erosion, the movement of water, the water under the ocean, the water under the ground. And uh, then at a stage in my life where... Um, I suppose I was drinking a bit socially at the weekends. You'd wake up now and again and say, as David Byrne did, this is not my beautiful house. <laughs> <laughs> so that track in particular, I think, um, captured my life in my early 20s, in the in the early 80s, you know. But they were a brilliant band. Sorry, isn't the line that follows that, that is not my beautiful wife? Yeah, well, well I, I, you know, <laughs> moving on. Let's hear a little bit of Once in a Lifetime. <laughs> It was a great concert album, they made. Stop Making Sense, wasn't it? Which yeah, was and a the, massive hit a few years after. And that. the film. Film, yeah. It was on in the uh, uh, the Ambassador Cinema down at the end of O'Connell Street at the weekends. Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> what a, what Briefly, a before you take a break, uh, the best gig you were ever at, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with your choice. Linton Quasi Johnson? 
Lyndon Crazy Johnson is a poet and he recorded these extraordinary records with the Dennis Bovell band, um, reggae band, uh, Forces of Victory, and I can't remember the others, in, in the late 70s. And there was a, a place on Harcourt Street, the TV Club. I think it was the Baker's Union and it was a dance hall. But reggae was particularly great in that venue because you could feel the bass and the drums in the wood under you. It came up... It, the sound came up from the floor rather than the other way around. And that particular night is just amazing because I think he was like a rapper before there was rap or, a, you know, there were toasters in, in that reggae ska tradition. But uh, I'd heard the record, but I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to expect. But this dapper man with a goatee and a trench coat and... Um, I don't know, a trilby, I think it was. I'm not sure. I'm not good on hats. But came out and just delivered this brilliant stuff, you know. And years later, when, I, when I'd written, when I was, and I was at a, um, a festival in Holland, a friend of mine came with me. And we'd gone into Amsterdam and had wandered around for a while. And we came back to the hotel and it was packed. And we, got, we finally got up to the bar and... Just luckily, two people vacated their seats and we got the seats and we found ourselves sitting beside Linton Quasey Johnson. He was there at the festival as well. And we had a great natter for um, uh, a couple of hours. And I think the two of us, myself and Paul, my friend, probably still think that is the coolest thing that ever happened to us. You know, he was just brilliant. And his music is really, really great. As it happens, we have a clip from him live in Paris about 25 years after you saw him at the TV club in Dublin. Linton Kwasi Johnson, live in Paris 2004. Roddy Doyle is with us for the Culture Club here on The Last Word at FM. We've lots more to get through after this quick break. Roddy Doyle has stayed with us for the Culture Club here on The Last Word at FM. We're getting off the music and who do you like reading? Who's your favourite author? Dickens. Charles Dickens, yeah. Do you still go back to Dickens? Because oh, Dickens yeah. is the type of author I think an awful lot of us might have read when we were young. I did, yeah. And then move away from. Still read them. Uh, earlier this year, I read The Old Curiosity Shop and actually I hadn't read it before. I'd read, I think, all his major work and actually a lot of his, virtually everything, I think. And I hadn't read this one because I was warned off at a good friend of mine whose taste I, you know, would trust said, don't go, it's terribly sentimental. But I read it and it would, I thought it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I don't know, he's, there are writers I've, re I've, I've read when I was a young man or a child even, and I go back and I look at them and I'm mystified, you know, as to what I saw in them. And I decide, yeah, they're for, you know, a younger head or whatever. 
But Dickens, I don't know, I read a Dickens book every couple of years, you know, I reread them and um, I don't know how many times I've read Great Expectations and it doesn't seem to be... Uh, it, it's a different experience sometimes because I'm an older man, if you like, and I suppose I'm, I'm looking at things in the books that I didn't really notice when I was a kid and the politics might be more overt and interesting or whatever, but... Um, uh, I just think he's a, he's a marvellous writer. He's really, really brilliant. And um, I like as well, there's no expectation, I think, that his books are going to be perfect, you know. He wrote serial, uh, serials, he, he, you know, so he wrote in a hurry. Yeah, so people said it was a bit like the sort of the soap operas of the time. Yeah, I think, they had no, I, I think, you know, wouldn't... Uh, probably it's like a, a, a good series on, on telly yeah. rather than a soap opera. And, you know, if you like, almost like um, series one was unexpectedly popular, so sudden, they get a sudden commission to do series two. And that's Dickens writing his next novel, you know. And I remember reading, he's the only, he's, it's funnily as well that over the years, he's the only writer that I've actually been interested in as biographically. I don't tend to have much interest in the lives of writers at all, but I did in him. And um, I remember reading that, Apparently, when he was writing Great Expectations, he, he he suffered dreadful pain down the side of his face, really, really dreadful muscular pain down his face, which stopped when he finished, you know. And I thought that really, it's extreme, but I think it does capture, in a way, that artistic urge. You ever have that problem? Not my, No, not my face, no. Oh, other parts? Uh, yeah, I had a... Um, um, a muscular problem in my left hand when I was writing the book uh, Paula Spencer, which is about a woman, uh, Paula, well, obviously Paula Spencer, but she's um, a cleaner uh, and needs every penny that she earns, you know, and she's got nothing to fall back on. And uh, I started feeling, I couldn't open doors and things like that for a while and I'm left-handed, so it was a bit of a worry, but I gave the pain to her. It became a real worry for her. You know, because if she couldn't work, she was in deep, deep trouble because she needed every penny. The fridge was empty on Thursday night, you know. So um, I don't know why it happened at that particular time. But actually, uh, once I gave her the pain in a way, it seemed to make a bit of sense and it eventually drifted away. We have a little bit of an extract from the audio version of Great Expectations, read by Martin Jarvis. Oh, he's this, brilliant. This is where young Pip meets the convict in the graveyard. Mm. Now, looky here, said the man. Where's your mother? There, sir, said I. He started, made a short run, and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained. Also, Georgiana, that's my mother. Oh, said he, coming back. And is that your father, along of your mother? Yes, sir, said I. Him too, late of this parish. Ha, he muttered then, considering... Who'd you live with, supposing you're kindly let to live, which I hadn't made up my mind about? My sister, sir, Mrs. Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery, the blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? said he, and looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and at me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, took me by both arms, and tilted me back as far as he could hold me, so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now looky here, he said, the question being whether you're to be let live. You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what whittles is? Yes, sir. 
After each question he tilted me over a little more, so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. "'You get me a file,' he tilted me again. "'And you get me whittles,' he tilted me again. "'You bring them both to me,' he tilted me again. "'Or I'll have your heart and liver out,' he tilted me again. Great expectations. Martin Jarvis there. Um, if you want a really joyful experience, him reading uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, The Code of the Woosters. I was listening to it while I was driving and I had to get off the road because <laughs> I was I didn't trust myself on the road. <laughs> I was laughing so much. He is brilliant at it. Favourite play. You've gone back to, I think, the 80s, isn't it? Yeah. Studs by Paul Mercer, a great yeah. friend of yours. Paul is a great friend of mine and a huge inspiration, I think. He was writing these plays for The Passion Machine, which he co-founded with another great friend, John Sutton. And I had the benefit, if you like, and, the, and, and I, the, I was lucky to see these things going into production in a way. Paul asked me to come to the uh, rehearsal of one of the plays and I remember sitting being absolutely spellbound because the characters just seemed so familiar and the way they were talking was exactly as you'd hear. This was in a a hall uh, behind Parnell Square and um, the characters were talking exactly like the people who outside were passing by, you know. I, I even remember it was a rainy day and I discovered one of my Doc Martens was leaking, you know. <laughs> and that is... 1984, maybe 85. So, you know, it's a long time ago, but I still remember it. But that's and the way you've written a lot of your work as well, though, isn't I, it? It's I was writing, voices. I was trying to find, if you like, my own door to open. I was writing, and around about the same time that Paul was producing or, you know, writing and John was producing uh, Wasters and this play, this particular play, Studs, I was writing The Commitments, yeah. And thinking up names for the characters and deciding how to present the dialogue on the page. Um, I never saw uh, the, the, the working drafts of the plays that Paul was writing, but I did watch, you know, and studs in particular, just as it was so exciting because it's about a football team. So it's a world that a lot of people are familiar with, but you'd never consider it, if you like, material for a play. But these were 11 men and the manager. So 12 men wearing kind of Juventus jerseys, um, oversized Juventus jerseys up on the stage, black and white, you know. And the action was just so brilliant and so funny. And he had action replays as well, you know. (laughs) Liam Cunningham was in the original cast. Yeah, you know. And um, a lot of you know, young people who went on to be well-known older people. We have the movie version, a clip from it, with Brendan Gleeson as Walter Mm. Keegan getting the job as the failing football team's manager and we have to give you the strong language warning. I'm not quite sure where I'll be in five years' time, Speedy. You know, I'd like to see myself managing this team, but that's if I get the job, of course. Mm. And, um, ever done it before? Um, no. Oh, for fuck's yes, sake! Yes, no, we normally disqualify candidates with no previous experience, but... The advertisement did specify none was required. Have you even played football? I've played, yeah. Who you? St Mary's. Who? St Mary's. Never fucking heard of them. I've never seen this man before. Yeah, well, like I say, like, I'm not from around here, you know? But what exactly do you do for a living, Mr Keegan? I sell. Sell what? A decent burial. <laughs> oh, yeah. I beg your pardon? It's life insurance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is no laughing matter. Uh, Michael, would you mind not interrupting? <laughs> and why us? Hopper, I thought you were leaving. I am reconsidering me resignation. Now, why us? 
Why not? Yes, well, I think that more or less wraps it up. Wait a now, minute! terms are as follows. You're getting one month's probation and one hour's notice if I don't like you. How is that? Fair enough. And if this is a hoax, I'll arrange to have your legs broken. Fair enough? Fair enough. Right. All in favour, raise your hands. Carried. Woo! Job is yours. Thank you. I resign. See you next Sunday. Yeah. When do you train? Thursdays. Do we? Ideal. Why, are you thinking of going? About <sighs> seven. Perfect. Well, I suppose I'll start getting to know you all then. Studs by Paul Mercier. Okay. Roddy Doyle, we're continuing the Culture Club <laughs> podcast version because I've been enjoying talking to you so much. We've gone way over a lot of time and we still have so much stuff to get to. Uh, I think you've, you almost gave away your favourite TV show earlier when you mentioned The Sopranos that you rewatched during lockdown, yeah, yeah. but it was beaten by something else. I mean, so I, was it The Wire? Okay, yes, it was yeah, The Wire. Yeah, you it was, was a, a two-horse race, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like the Beatles or the Stones or, you know, those silly arguments about which is the better. And I just decided and I went because I'd seen The Sopranos and I suppose visually we tend to see more images of Tony Soprano or even there was a some meme going around a few days ago of Uncle Junior, you know, um, that I just thought, well, The Wire, just to remind myself and others just how brilliant and magnificent it is, you know, it's just extraordinary. Um is that again the sort of the the scripting, as in the sort of the ordinariness of the voices, the realism of the voices? You know, it's everything about it, really. And I, I remember the because the 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 accents weren't familiar in a way. I was kind of leaning towards the telly, but I realised it wasn't just to hear what was going on. It was because I was really being drawn into the thing. Like it wasn't something you watch casually and you know flick around with your phone to see what the football scores are. It was just so, it was right, it was like watching a novel and the novel is such a page turner that you really don't want to turn out the light and go to bed, you know, to sleep. It's not an option. But that world that he created that was immediately there and these incredibly compelling characters that a lot of them, you know, Stringer Bell or whatever, you realise that they were somehow or other forced into their roles by geography and by... Um, politics and by race and the good guys weren't necessarily good and the bad guys weren't necessarily bad and that was a grey area and just you know there was um, so much I don't know deep life in it and you mean heartbreaking the kids you know going the wrong way not having a choice in some cases but to go the wrong way and characters you're just beginning to really like or feel there's another dimension to this person and they're shot, you know. And that seems quite brutal, but it's brilliant storytelling, you know. And the whole thing I just thought was fantastic. And uh, I think I, I, I thought it was a great pity that there wasn't another series of it or of The Sopranos, you know. Although, you know, they're very complete, but... Um, I watched a lot of good telly since then, but I suppose because they were, in a way, carving the path for others to follow, they are, to me, the best. Let's hear a clip from The Wire where Omar Little, played by the recently deceased Michael mm. K. Williams, takes the stands as a witness in season two of The Wire. So you rob drug dealers? This is what you do? Yes, sir. You walk the streets of Baltimore with a gun, taking what you want, when you want it, 
willing to use violence when your demands aren't met, this is who you are. Why should we believe your testimony, then? Why believe anything you say? That's up to y'all, really. You say you aren't here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police. True that. That you're here because you, you, you want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot. Yep. When, in fact, you are exactly the kind of person who would, if you felt you needed to, shoot a man down on a housing project parking lot and then lie to the police about it, would you not? And look, I never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. We got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? The Wire. <laughs> Movies. Captures it perfectly, I think. You picked out as your favourite movie when we don't have a clip for a Fellini movie, Amacord. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, again, I saw it. I was too young. I think it was 16. In an art house cinema. Um, can't remember the name of it. Uh, we're going back now. This will be 1974 with a friend of mine, Friday night. Uh, and um, it was on the, the cinema was underneath the harp cinema, the harp bar. At Connell Bridge. Connell Bridge. I can't remember what it was called. But there was something vaguely unpermitted about it all. We went in and this was Fellini and uh, my friend's uncle was a big Fellini fan, which is why we were there and didn't know really what to expect. And this glorious thing starts. The music is extraordinary. The colour was extraordinary. And it's the life of a... I think Fellini grew up in Rimini, in northern Italy. And it's life in that town in the 30s, pre-war, under Mussolini, from spring to the following spring. And it starts with blossoms in the air, you know, falling from the, and it ends in the same way. And there's this chaos of brilliant characters, eccentric characters, um, huge women. There's a tobacconist that tries almost smothers one of the characters with her breasts, you know. And to see that as a, you know, in 1974 in Ireland um, and other beautiful, you know, almost beautifully grotesque characters and a family and the family around the table where the father's on the verge of explosion and the mother and, you know, it's it's just, it was just brilliant. And it was so funny. And then at moments, so tender. The father expresses left-wing opinion out loud and he's hauled in by the police and he's basically really, really maltreated and humiliated. And he comes home and having shouted and roared at his wife and her roaring at him through the film, there's a tender moment where he's in the bath and she's cleaning him, you know. And it's really, really beautiful as an expression of love, I suppose. It's an, it's an unusual expression of love, but it was really, really great. And it lived with me. And I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but dozens of times I've seen it. But it always feels like the new, you know, brand new experience. It is a, it's an amazing film, it really is. You clearly have a good story. So just to finish on podcasts, have you found good stories on podcasts or do you listen to them much? If you're out on your bike, 
listening to music? Do you listen to podcasts? I don't listen to many, but I did love uh, West Cork. I thought it was great. You know, the, the, the funny Did thing, you watch any then of the TV series I did, I watched Jim Sheridan's one, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I, didn't, I decided enough was enough then at that stage. But I did watch West Cork and I found it really interesting. I think I was into the second episode before we heard a Cork accent. <laughs> you know, and, but I, I suppose the guilty thing is that you tend to forget that, you know, keep reminding yourself that somebody was murdered. A woman was murdered in the most horrific circumstances. The one I, the one I really uh, listened to recently, I think it's a five-parter, Glenn Patterson's one on BBC Sounds about the Northern Bank Raid. Let's hear a clip from it. Northern Bank employee Chris Ward is watching TV with his dad when he hears a knock at the door. Kevin McMullen, another employee, is at home with his wife Karen when police arrive to tell him that there's been a road traffic accident. The biggest bank robbery in British and Irish history is about to begin. Late evening, late December 2004. It's as cold and as dark as you'd imagine. In Drumcare Forest, on the sparsely populated foothill of the Moyne Mountains, it's even colder, even darker. A young woman dressed only in a boiler suit and trainers is dragged from a car. She has her fingers pressed into her eyes for fear that the armed men who have brought her here will think that she's seen them. The men push her further and further into the forest before finally forcing her down onto the ground. I was waiting for a gun to the back of the head. I asked them to give my body back to my family. Instead, a hand touches her in the left shoulder and a man's voice says, the road's that way. Don't move for 10 minutes. Northern Bank job, that's a very dramatic introduction to it. Yeah, and it is, a, again, if you were listening to it partially, you'd think it's like the Keystone Cops, that it's um, it's the material of comedy because it was so inept in many, many ways. But actually, it's a good reminder that people did suffer, you know. And there are familiar names in it as well, names that we've heard over the years um, and have become kind of legends in Republican lore. And actually, there's nothing heroic about this at all, you know. But it's a great piece of storytelling and I was really delighted. Glenn Patterson is a friend of mine, you know, so it's, it's particularly nice when it's uh, somebody you know and like. Um, and I just, I, I think it's about the only time where I just had to listen to the next episode and the next one and the next one. I wasn't going away till I'd finished it because I really wanted to. Uh, That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Roddy Doyle, it's been great. Thank you for taking Thanks. the time for the extended <laughs> version of the Culture Club here for podcast. Yeah, my agent will be in touch. <laughs> I'm loving Life Without Children, as I said. Thank I read you. the first four stories and I just... Love the characters and I love the sympathy that you have right. for the, you, how Matt. they find themselves in life. They're such believable characters yeah. and such believable stories. It's terrific, as thank all you. your work is. Roddy Doyle, thank you Thanks for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.